What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we're still thinking about Tulsa and the massacre of black people there in 1921, probably the deadliest instance of racial violence in this country history and one that was covered up for a hundred years. How did that happen? Historian Eric Foner will comment. But first, Republicans and abortion. It's looking like the post-Trump GOP might actually be worse than it's been in the Trump years. In Texas, maybe you heard, the Republicans are empowering vigilantes to go after people helping women who seek abortions, and they've deputized the state citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash for turning in their neighbors who help women seeking abortions. For comment, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Rick, of course, is the author of the bestseller Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, a New York Times notable book. It's out now in paperback. Before that, of course, there was Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, and the classic Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation, among other places. We reached him today somewhere in Marshall County, south of Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Always great to be with you. Well, let's start with this Texas abortion law. The GOP has been anti-abortion for a long time now, but it wasn't always. We've often been told the Supreme Court made abortion a national political issue with Roe v. Wade in 1973. But really, the first time abortion was an issue in a presidential election was before that. It was not a backlash against Roe. It was in 1972, the year before Roe, when Nixon was running for re-election against George McGovern, who they called the candidate of acid amnesty and abortion. I always thought that was unfair because McGovern wasn't for acid. He wasn't for abortion either. He wasn't either. for abortion either, yeah. So at the 1972 Democratic National Convention, um, he leaned on delegates to, to vote against the abortion for everyone everywhere plank because he, you know, for political reasons, he wanted to keep his coalition together. And actually in, in the wonderful Mrs. America miniseries on Schlafly and feminism and anti-feminism, they have a magnificent reconstruction of that day on the convention floor. So not quite so even fair. How did it become an issue going back as far as 1972? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and complicated story. States began putting together liberal abortion laws later in the 60s. In fact, you may recall Ronald Reagan signed one of them. He claimed he was you know, tricked into it and there was a loophole that he didn't quite understand. And uh, But New York had a very liberal abortion law. So it was kind of entering the books as an issue going into the late 60s. And it was really uh, a Catholic issue. The Catholic hierarchy despised abortion, right? They considered it running afoul of you know, God's will. And uh, as this 
issue is beginning to bubble up. It's almost exclusively a Catholic issue when it comes to the uh, activism against it. And that's why Richard Nixon was interested in it, because he was trying to attract, you know, working class Catholics. Catholics were Olson, overwhelmingly you know. democratic in for decades. Overwhelmingly democratic. So this was kind of part of the culture war agenda to attract, you know, union voters, you know, the people who would eventually become uh, Reagan Democrats. And then comes Roe versus Wade. And of course, you know, the Catholic hierarchy is 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 apoplectic, right? But the, the people who become so important later in the Republican conservative coalition, Protestant evangelicals, fundamentalists, um, are um, either indifferent and in some cases even appreciative of Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's a um, very famous and very important Southern Baptist, Baptist minister who had been a segregationist uh, who said that John F. Kennedy was going to, you know, turn America over to the Pope in 1960. His name is Wally Criswell. I write about him in Latin Reagan land because he was really, um, he was recruited by Ford and he became kind of the first Christian right pastor to really kind of um, declare himself four square for the Republican party in 1976, right? But when Roe versus Wade happened, he thought it was a great idea. He was on the record saying it was, it was the best thing since sliced bread. And even before that, before Roe versus Wade, George Wallace was very appreciative of abortion. And, you know, you can find some very racist language from him about how great it was that these broodmares were kind of have an option of not, you know, dropping so many children on the public dime and this terrible, awful stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really shows how abortion was often seen in the context of population control, which was this big issue we don't even really think about anymore. But this idea that somehow people had to figure out a way to keep from overpopulating the earth had its right wing uh, expression. And that was this kind of mild eugenics, right? That it was good that we could, that all these undesirable people could end their pregnancies. And the process that kind of brought the Protestant right wing into the abortion politics was slow. You, you would see in uh, Christianity Today, which was the magazine that was started by Billy Graham, first you see mild kind of agnosticism, sometimes verging into support. And then by 1974, you get this kind of skepticism about abortion and you begin to see things like, um, well, it's not just a Catholic issue anymore. You shouldn't be av avoiding opposing abortion just because it's Catholic. And there was a lot more kind of interdenominational rivalry uh, before the late 70s. And I think basically just what would happen probably from the grassroots was just this sense that abortion liberated women to be sexually free. And you couldn't keep, keep them down on the farm, you know, once they had that kind of freedom. And it kind of spoke to this very basic sense that hierarchy and authority required, you know, basically women's fertility to be to be part of the natural order. And so, you know, by 1976, you do see Jerry Falwell talking about abortion as one of the terrible things that liberals were forcing down each other's throats. And then by 1977, when you really begin to see um, the stirrings of the Christian right around, you know, the anti-gay issues with the Anita Bryant and <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly and the, the feminism stuff, it kind of becomes this kind of densely packed kind of Gordian knot of issues, you know, the Satan's kind of will on earth. And it's, it's, it's of a piece with all these issues 
of this population of people who's terrified that the kind of social liberation movements, the sixties are beginning to, you know, mainstream themselves even into their small town such that by 1978, as I write about in, in Reagan land, you begin to see some very hardcore politicking in the off year elections. But the real watershed, I think, was a guy named Francis Schaefer. And he was basically a Protestant theologian who did these kind of PBS style documentaries on how world the world was going to pop because secular humanism was taking over. And the first one was in 1977. And it was called How Then Shall We Live? And it was like an eight part thing. And the last episode only was on abortion. And Francis Schaefer's son, Frankie Schaefer, was the guy who directed the movie. Uh, you might have seen him at MSNBC. He kind of was an apostate from the Christian right. And one of the things he pointed out was he wanted to put abortion in this documentary, but his dad said, no, it's a Catholic issue. Huh. And the son said, you know, you always complained about those ministers in Nazi Germany who didn't, you know, hold back, who held back their criticisms against, you know, Hitler. And now it's happening again. <laughs> and so he was persuaded. And then two years later, they made another documentary. And that was basically all about abortion as the cornerstone of how Christian civilization was going to collapse. So basically, by 1980, it's just completely stitched into the entire social agenda, social issue agenda for the Republican Party and at the convention, the platform pledges the party to appointing judges who appreciate human life, you know, code word for abortion. And Reagan is for a square for a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion. Now, the Republicans have one problem for all of these decades, and that is that opinion polls show that a majority of Americans do not want Roe v. Wade repealed. This has been true for decades. Opinion polls show that there may be a majority for some kinds of restrictions and you can chip away at this and still have popular support. The rock bottom question, do you support the repeal of Roe v. Wade? Overwhelmingly, Americans have never support, a majority of Americans have never supported this. And that's always been the Republicans' big problem. They can chip away at it, but they can't really overturn it, even though they've mobilized millions of voters around the promise that they will. Today, perhaps we've reached the point where the Republican judges actually will repeal Roe v. Wade. Many Democratic strategists have been saying for years, the best thing that could happen to the National Democrats is for Roe v. Wade to be repealed, because that will create intensity around an issue for Democrats where they have not voted with the intensity that the evangelicals have. I wonder if we're reaching that moment now. Well, I have two thoughts about that. First of all, it's always dangerous to kind of wish for reaction. So, you know, we can have progress, right? I mean, that's yes. the old, that's the old Weimar socialist after Hitler, we take over. So we don't want to mess around with this. I mean, people's lives are at stake, right? But the other issue is, uh, and that is where the actions, not just of Texas, but even more importantly, of the Supreme Court of the United States, not enjoining this obviously unconstitutional law and deciding it in this shadow docket that they use for, you know, kind of last minute death penalty appeals that, you know, creates no written record, plays into the overwhelming transcendent issue that has us fighting for democracy itself in the year 2021. 
And that is what rolls up the abortion issue now in the January 6th insurrection issue, all the violence we're seeing around the country. And that's that's the issue of the Republican Party in full retreat from democracy. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the Reagan coalition was a concerted and successful attempt to put together a majority coalition. And they get this remarkable landslide in 1984. Basically, they were able to win the House of Representatives in 1994. But now they only have uh, a ceiling of, say, 45 percent of the popular votes. So everything they do in order to achieve their goals, which they see in kind of transcendent and apocalyptic civilization versus barbarism terms, they have to achieve using non-democratic methods. And that takes us right back to Texas. Not only have they created this vigilante thing around abortion, they have these new voting rights bills that are empowering the people they call poll watchers to move freely within polling sites making it a criminal offense to obstruct poll watchers in their, quote, observation of election workers. Uh, This is another side of this anti-democratic authoritarian push that you are talking about. Yes, and of course, I've been tracing this one since, you know, 1962 and, you know, Operation Eagle Eye and, you know... Operation Eagle Eye, what was that? That was where... Justice Rehnquist got his start in Arizona politics? Well, not his start. He was already kind of had a nice head of steam and was a leader in the party by 1962 when he helped lead the efforts and personally participated in, you know, doing just the kind of nominal poll watching, but actual poll intimidation. You know, I wrote a big article about this in uh, Talking Points Memo, and you can find it by Googling uh, talking dogs, Rick Perlstein and talking voting dogs. Basically, this is a you know steady, 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 steady process that, uh, you know, really, this is only the apotheosis of. You know, it's- but in 1962, it was a secret. It took historians like Rick Perlstein to uncover and publicize what Rehnquist had been doing in his young life now it is it's one of those it's one of those things that uh, the trump era turned a dog whistle into a train whistle now it's the official policy you know the implicit policy that everyone in a urban area somehow is suspect as a voter is now you know an explicit policy and the idea that you know when you when you see one of these kind of corn fed middle americans you know look into a tv camera and say it's obvious that that Biden didn't win, you can hear very similar expressions, you know, all through the history of American reaction. And it really kind of comes down to the notion that, you know, American cities run by minorities, run by Democrats, Democrats are so corrupt that there really are these giant vote harvesting, you know, operations. You see that all the time in 1960s rhetoric and 1970s rhetoric and 1980s rhetoric. And, you know, that's why the Republican National Committee you know, had to reach a settlement, you know, not to try to do all this stuff. 2016 was when that settlement uh, in a case from New Jersey uh, wasn't renewed. And in was it the Burwell case, the Chief Justice John Roberts overturned the portion of the Voting Rights Act that required Southern states to check their voting laws with the Justice Department before they initiated them. So all these things kind of come together And we have this attempt to basically force reactionary policies down the American people's throats, whether they have democratic sanction or not, through all sorts of, you know, multivariate strategies. And this is just one of the many. And then you get into the whole business of how 
Federal Society and Leonard Leo have run this kind of this secret, you know, money laundering operation to turn Supreme Court vacancies into right wing democracy stealing opportunities. And this is really, in a lot of ways, all these different paths kind of leading to the destination, which are policy outcomes that turn America into this feudalist 19th century country. Feudal, we didn't have feudalism in the 19th century, but uh, <laughs> okay. this whole conversation, we've barely mentioned Donald Trump. It seems like he's just kind of a small player in this long story. Well, he's one of many uh, important players, but Donald Trump is an important player because he's kind of licensed these kind of demonic energies that have been present but suppressed within the Republican coalition. It's kind of open season. So you get a figure like you know Lindsey Graham saying Ronald, uh, Donald Trump is a clown in 2016, and then by his own reelection in 2018 is talking like Donald Trump and saying black black men are perfectly safe in South Carolina so long as they're not liberal. You know, <laughs> you know. So what happened? You know, Lindsey Graham. I think you know you you have these kind of fundamentally authoritarian reactionary minds realizing that Trump was an opportunity that they don't have to censor themselves anymore and they can achieve things through anti-democratic means that they can never achieve through democratic means. And it all feeds into the same logic. We'd always been able to kind of patch the dam against the raging of this sort of reactionary onslaught. And, you know, Donald Trump, you know, was the guy who breached the dam. And now we're dealing with these onrushing consequences. Rick Perlstein. His book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, is out now in paperback. Thank you, Rick. Let's do this again soon. Always a pleasure, Doc. We're still thinking about what happened in Tulsa in 1921. Just a few months ago, we learned it was not a race riot. Instead, it was a massacre, probably the deadliest instance of racial violence in the country's history. And now we're learning more about what happened there and how that history was hidden, covered up by a conspiracy of silence. That's because there's a new book out about that history. It's called The Groundbreaking, written by Scott Ellsworth. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for several decades. His work on the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, good to talk to you, John. For starters here, remind us briefly about what happened in Tulsa in 1921. At, at the time, Tulsa was the oil capital of America. It had a flourishing black community centered around something they called Black Wall Street. How come Black Wall Street was in Tulsa? <laughs> well, Tulsa was a boom town because of the oil industry, as you mentioned. Uh, the population had grown dramatically uh, in the 10 years before 1921, both white and black people moving into Tulsa. There were jobs, there was money, there were institutions. The black community there was uh, kind of unique in that it was really uh, almost self-sufficient. Uh, Greenwood, the African-American uh, community or neighborhood, 
had all sorts of institutions that had numerous shops, it had professional services, lawyers, doctors, etc. two newspapers, it had big hotels, restaurants, libraries, you name it, for black people. It was a segregated town. And partly because the downtown shops didn't want to serve black people, they created their own community, which was controlled by uh, African-Americans. Most of the people living there were not affluent by any means, but nonetheless, there was a substantial middle class and it was a thriving part of a boom city. And how many black people were killed in Tulsa in that massacre? Nobody knows exactly how many people were killed. Uh, The best estimates today run between 100 and 300 people. One of the things I point out is, as you know, I reviewed this book in the current issue of the London Review of Books by Scott Ellsworth. And, um, you know, uh, he points out that they are searching for mass graves now in uh, various parts of Tulsa, that many of the victims of that massacre were just buried in unknown places, and they're trying to reconstruct that. So the number who actually died is still um, to be determined. And do we know how many homes were destroyed or how many people lost their homes? Yeah, something like 1,500 buildings were destroyed by fire, by mob attack, looting. The the, the population of of Greenwood was around 10,000 at that time, and I think a majority of them found themselves homeless after this massive uh, invasion of Greenwood by armed white uh, supremacists uh, who then ran amok and burned things down and shot people in the street, etc., uh, etc. Et it devastated that community for a long, long time. And the big puzzle to lots of us is why did this happen in Tulsa when nothing like it happened in Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina? Why did it happen in Oklahoma, which had not been a slave state, which had not been part of the Confederacy. Oklahoma is a funny state Uh, in terms of its history. As you know, it was Indian territory. That's what it was called before it became a state in the Union in 1907. There was an indigenous native population. Thousands of Indians from the East Coast were moved there in the 1830s as part of the Trail of Tears. Later, Western Indians were moved there by the federal government. Uh, And a lot of black people moved there, too, particularly in this period when Jim Crow was being fastened upon the South. Uh, Oklahoma, for complicated reasons, there was land available in uh, Oklahoma. A lot of it was Native American land, which the government was making available to uh, white and sometimes black settlers. So you had a situation where actually black people were thriving in Tulsa. And this was one of the reasons for resentment against them, that the local whites uh, didn't like the fact that the black community was so uh, prosperous and successful. Uh, but also there was deep racism. They, uh, there were laws about segregation. Oklahoma is the only state that was not part of the Confederacy that moved to disenfranchise black voters uh, in the period of the early uh, 20th century. So there was racial tension. There was a kind of strange racial combination of Native Americans, Black Americans, White Americans living uh, in Oklahoma anyway. And also, uh, Ellsworth in his book said that this kind of boomtown atmosphere uh, didn't generate a lot of respect for law and order, let's put it that way. The white people of Tulsa did everything they could to bury this history and keep it hidden, and they succeeded for almost 100 years. How did they do it? 
there was a concerted effort to just suppress the the knowledge, the memory of this massive uh, massacre. It's hard to do that with an event of such magnitude, but they uh, destroyed public records. If you go to do research, the records of the National Guard, which had been uh, taking place there, uh, the records of local newspapers, there were actually articles cut out of local newspapers uh, in the University of Tulsa Library, so no one would ever see these things. Uh, the sheriff ordered his men to, after the riot, to go around and remove photographs that might have been taken by uh, photography shops of the devastation uh, in Greenwood in Tulsa. Um, And it was very clear you weren't supposed to mention this in school. Teachers were reprimanded if they made any reference to the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, So there was this concerted effort to literally suppress historical memory. That raises the question of why. Why did the whites in Tulsa want to keep this massacre a secret? In, In contrast to the practice of whites throughout the Deep South who made lynchings of black men, public events, spectacles that often had hundreds of white people watching that were recorded in photographs, which were then widely distributed afterwards. White people in the Deep South wanted everyone to know that the racial order there was enforced by violence. Why do you think whites in Tulsa wanted to keep their history secret? That's a very good question. I think Given that this was an oil center, that meant that it was a city that had connections all over the country and indeed all over the world. It was part of a you know, much larger uh, system of economics and trade. And I think the city fathers, so to speak, the all white city government, just didn't think this would be good for the image of Tulsa. Businessmen in Tulsa were, were dealing with business people all over the world and certainly all over the United States via the oil industry. And uh, I think they just felt this was not the image they wanted their city to have, a place of extreme racist violence. You're right. There are many places where lynchings were public spectacles in order to intimidate the black population. But here, I think they were more concerned with the reputation of the city. And there's an even bigger surprise. Uh, You say that black people in Tulsa also kept the secret of what happened to them in 1921. Why was that? Ellsworth makes that point. I think, uh, you know, they may have, we don't know why. I mean, they talked about it in their homes. Black people knew this had happened, but there was nothing public said or, or done about it for a long, long time. And I think they may have felt that if you started talking about it, you'd just stimulate more racial violence. He doesn't quite explain why uh, the black community was pretty silent. He does show that by another generation. By the late 1960s, there were now younger blacks who began really investigating this. So the fact that both whites and blacks wanted to keep this history secret for decades poses huge problems for historians like you and me. You say this began to be broken in the 60s. How did historians then and now with this historian Scott Ellsworth uncover these secrets? First of all, black survivors were willing to talk to investigators. Ellsworth himself grew up in Tulsa. He first heard about this in high school. and he couldn't He's white, it. is that right? Ellsworth he's is white. white. Yes, he's a white writer. He grew up, went to all white schools in Tulsa. As a kind of a, working on a, like a term paper in high school, he began running across old little articles here and there about a race war that had taken place in Tulsa. He began investigating it, but he it was very difficult, but I, you have to give him credit. He wrote the first significant history of the Tulsa massacre 
which appeared in the uh, early 1980s. He relied on, you know, there was some documentation available. Uh, the people who were trying to suppress this forgot that newspapers also exist on microfilm. So even though they <laughs> cut the articles out of the actual copies of the paper in the library, somebody had microfilmed the papers before that was happen had happened. So you could find information. Uh, he gives credit to survivors. He gives credit to a black woman who wrote a short pamphlet in the 1920s about what happened in Tulsa. So, you know, it wasn't absolutely 100 percent suppressed. But within Tulsa, you were just not supposed to mention this at all. And what happened to black Tulsa after 1921? Well, as we said, you know, a tremendous amount of apart from the loss of life, a tremendous amount of property and wealth was destroyed. Uh, which set the black community back for a long, long time and uh, destroyed the assets of many families. Greenwood began to recuperate, though, in the 1940s. Uh, it was, again, a uh, commercial district with all sorts of shops and everything. It still exists today, although in a in much attenuated form, much smaller. But the black community of Tulsa has never, I think, really regained the, the stature, the standing and the wealth that it had before the Tulsa massacre. And you have this astounding statistic about black doctors in Tulsa then and now. There were more, apparently there were more black doctors in Tulsa in 1921 than there are black doctors in Tulsa today, when the city is far bigger, of course, than it was back then. This is one of the ironies of racial segregation, as you know. The very fact that black people were not allowed to be served in restaurants, in hotels, in shops downtown, uh, forced them to create their own institutions. It, it opened the door to entrepreneurs who would, the, the biggest black owned hotel in the country was in Tulsa because those downtown hotels would not allow black people, uh, black people in. The downtown clothing shops would not allow a black person to try on clothing if they wanted to buy it. Uh, you know, so that's why this was a thriving community. And that's really one of the main motivations, in a way, for the massacre, that whites just resented the fact that blacks were being so successful in Tulsa and that Greenwood occupied very valuable real estate right near the center of Tulsa. And there were white people who thought, you know, whites ought to own that land, not black people. So in the very success of the black population made them vulnerable to this kind of assault. The way that segregation contributed to the creation of a black elite is hardly unique to Tulsa. Of course, it happened throughout the segregated South. But what was unique in Tulsa was that when a whites organized to lynch a young black man accused of attacking a young white woman, black veterans of World War I armed marched on the jail to try to prevent that. That's, that was really the stimulus for these huge white mobs gathering. And that is what didn't happen in Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Of course, this was right after the end of World War I. Many black soldiers had fought in World War I. They were quite accustomed to using weaponry. And yes, black veterans marched twice that evening before the massacre to the city jail where this young young black teenager accused of assaulting a, a white young white woman was being lodged. They wanted to prevent a lynching. In fact, a newspaper uh, did publish an article that day, so-and-so to be lynched tonight. No, it was public information. They stopped that. There was no lynching that night. But uh, at one of these confrontations, some shots rang out. Nobody knows who 
fired them. The sheriff began distributing arms to whites who were gathered. And the next day, a large, large set of mobs uh, coordinating uh, them armed of white people uh, assaulted the black community of Tulsa and burned it to the ground. So even though there were black soldiers ready to defend their community, there weren't enough of them. They were far outnumbered by the armed uh, whites who took part. Also, they were outgunned. The National Guard set up a machine gun, which began firing into Greenwood <laughs> rather than trying to keep, uh, you know, keep the law and order. A local oil company apparently let the mob use an airplane and they dropped incendiary devices onto uh, the Greenwood neighborhood. Uh, so this was a all this was a riot of individuals, of private people, of policemen, of national guardsmen, uh, and the uh, the black defenders were just uh, overwhelmed, so to speak, by the forces attacking them. And were black people ever compensated for the destruction of their homes and their businesses? Well, you know, in the 1990s, the uh, legislature of Oklahoma finally set up a commission to investigate the Tulsa riot. And that commission, uh, for which Ellsworth himself and the historian John Hope Franklin, a black historian who grew up in Tulsa, uh, that commission recommended what you might call reparations. There was still some elderly survivors around. This is 80 years, maybe, or since the uh, since the massacre. And they recommended public compensation to these people who, uh, who were still alive, but also a more general kind of reparations like college scholarships for black young people coming out of uh, Tulsa at that point as a kind of way of paying back for all the destruction. Nothing was ever done along those lines. The legislature, the local authorities in Tulsa did not believe in reparations of any kind. And uh, indeed, insurance companies back in 1921 refused to pay uh, holders of policies for the loss of their property. They said riots are not covered by our uh, property insurance uh, uh, policies. This is one of the examples of why the racial gap in family assets is so wide in this country. Uh, I think today the median white family has about 10 times the amount of family wealth as the median black family, $80,000 to $8,000. Uh, $8,000 is much as your total family wealth. Uh, because, uh, you know, many black people have saw their, the wealth they accumulated destroyed, not just in Tulsa, but in many other places. Uh, and, uh, you know, wealth is accumulated over the generations. Of an event like the Tulsa Rip Massacre sets back an entire a community of people for a long, long time. They've got to start from scratch again to try to build up family wealth. Uh, and so they certainly deserved reparations of some kind, given the participation of the police and the National Guard in the rioting itself. But none was ever paid. And I know that uh, Oklahoma today is they voted for Trump. Now that the history of the race massacre of 1921 has been uncovered, and now we have observed the 100th anniversary. Is this being introduced in the history courses in the public schools there? Uh, for the moment, it is, yes. Uh, they are teaching about it 100 years later. They're, 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 it's now a public thing. I mean, there is a museum uh, about Greenwood in, uh, in Tulsa. Uh, there's a big mural uh, painted on the side of an of a, uh, elevated highway about it. 
you can go online and look and on Amazon and find books and souvenirs and other things related to the Tulsa massacre. And it is being taught in schools. The problem is that in Oklahoma, as in a number of other Republican-controlled states, laws are being passed to ban the teaching of what they call critical race theory. But really what they're trying to ban is teaching about racism altogether. Most of the legislators have no idea what critical race theory is, but they don't want, they have banned the teaching of the idea that racism is endemic in American society or anything like that. So uh, yes, they are teaching the massacre now, but the new laws may make it more and more difficult to do it. It's pretty difficult to teach about the Tulsa race massacre and not mention racism. Eric Foner wrote about Tulsa for the new issue of the London Review of Books. Thank you, Eric. This was great. Great to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.